Well, good morning. It's very good to see you all. And uh, here as we're kind of rocketing towards the end of the year and towards Christmas, uh, we have just one Sunday after this left uh, before Christmas Sunday. So we're going to take time to, uh, to look at one of the parables in our sequence this morning, and then uh, we will turn to a Christmas uh, incarnation uh, consideration next Thursday morning, Lord willing. So we're going to be this morning in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Let me begin with prayer. Our Father, we're just so thankful for all you give us in life. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to wake up this morning and to anticipate being here for the study of your word and for the preaching of your word and the fellowship of the saints. Father, we thank you that we've already experienced some of that fellowship this morning. And now we turn to teaching. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide this teaching in such a way that your Holy and Spirit-inspired Scripture alive sharper than any two-edged sword, we pierce right to the innermost and do the work only you can do for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in Luke chapter 16, uh, the, the acceleration, the dynamic in the gospel of Luke is increasing. And one of the ways you see this in the gospels is an increased open conflict between Jesus and others, and in particular between Jesus and the Pharisees. So, the, uh, the, the, the tension builds, and it is certainly building here in Luke chapter 16. Jesus began the chapter, and of course I say that arbitrarily because of the way we count the chapters, but nonetheless, uh, this particular sequence does go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 16 with what we know as the parable of the dishonest manager, which by the way is one of the most difficult of the parables of Jesus to interpret Jesus, though, appears to be taking a crook and holding that crook up as an example for believers, which is the strangest thing. You, you don't want to tell this to five-year-olds in Sunday school. But five-year-olds in Sunday school are actually incapable of understanding it anyway because the parable of the dishonest uh, steward, or whatever you want to call him here, uh, it is about shrewdness. Now, by the way, just as a matter of shrewdness, you do not find many shrewd five-year-olds. Five-year-olds are not very shrewd. They're pretty transparent, and they're, they're, if it's a cookie they want, it's a cookie they want. Very few of them have the ability to slide in like some kind of a shrewd salesperson and somehow negotiate to a cookie. It's, it's, it's a more straightforward transaction. Now, psychiatrists and developmental psychologists explain this, and, and this is something that we all note, but it, it's helpful to have a name for it. It's the development of complex analytical cognition. And uh, that turns out to be important. That's why a teenager is a teenager. Because that child that lacked all the ability for shrewdness at five is guided at 15. And uh, you got a different person on your hands. A 15-year-old can be shrewd. A 15-year-old, the complex part means can enter into additional ways of thinking. So, in other words, your 15-year-old thinks he or she's got you figured out. All of a sudden, concerned with how you're going to think. Maybe susceptible to mood and uh, to uh, just uh, circumstances. So, lay a little foundation for the cookie, or probably something a little bigger at that point in life. But the point is that analytical means they're thinking about it and all the rest. 
Well, Jesus appears to be saying here that shrewdness, which means the ability to size up an opportunity, that's what's important, to size up an opportunity, then to seize it. If this crook can do that, why can't his disciples do that for the gospel? The gospel needs a certain kind of shrewdness, a certain kind of shrewdness to say, you know, there could be a church there. A certain kind of shrewdness to say, you know, here's an opening for the gospel. Here's how we can get a team into this place. So again, that, that appears to be what that parable is about. But immediately thereafter, Jesus gets into another conflict with the Pharisees. And uh, the preceding parable may have been a part of that conflict. But so was teaching about marriage and divorce. But the important thing I want us to see is where we begin in verse 14 where Jesus has just told them, you cannot serve God and money. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Now, you see this, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Let's just not pass over that too quickly, because we can use that expression. And we, we mean by that someone who's merely materialistic. That's what we generally mean. But the Pharisees were lovers of money in a different sense, because they were certain that material abundance or money, was a sign of God's favor. So this had a theological dimension to it. In other words, they were quite certain that as they pleased God, God would honor them with wealth, a certain form of the prosperity theology that we have on just about every cable network, just about 24-7 now. And, uh, and, and by the way, that's self-reinforcing, right? If I believe God will make me rich, or I do happen to become rich, it's because I believed. Or if God has favor on me, I'll be rich. And then if I'm rich, I assume God's favor is on me. Now, that's a, exactly what's going to be proved wrong almost immediately. But nonetheless, that's where that is. They ridiculed Christ, and they said to him, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. So again, the interior, interior, exterior material success, interior spiritual rot. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That doesn't mean, by the way, that riches in themselves are an abomination to God, that that the Bible's pretty clear about this. It can be a sign of blessing. It can be a requirement of stewardship. It can be a stumbling block that can lead to eternal judgment. It's a, it's a, it's a dangerous equation. Look at verse 16. The law and prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become Void. I know what you're expecting there, and it's not what happened. I, I know you. You're evangelical Christians. You're expecting something else there. You're expecting to hear it's easier for a, you know, a, a rich man to go through the eye of a camel than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. In other words, you, we have anticipation. Our mind thinks of one gospel reference and jumps to another one. That's not where Jesus goes here. Instead, for one jot of the law or one dot of the law to become void. And then notice where he goes. So here's where, remember, this is shrewd. You're looking for shrewd? Here's shrewd. Here is sovereign shrewd. Here is Jesus shrewd. So 
it turns out that what we thought this is about is not what this is about, and everything becomes very clear in a way that is rather hastily dealt with in the text. But, but wow, there's an explosion here. Just watch what happens. Jesus has talked about them focusing on the externals, but God knows their heart. And then, oddly enough, while he was talking about the danger of riches, he says that heaven and earth shall pass away before one dot or one just, just verb point. Of the, of the word of God shall disappear. So what would be the text that would illustrate his point? Well, look at this, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Okay, so remember what's going on here because it's easy to read this and miss it. God knows the heart. The Pharisees want to look at the externals. Jesus said, you're focusing on the externals and you're reading a false message of divine blessing god sees your hearts but who is god in human flesh jesus jesus sees their hearts knows what's in their hearts and gives a testimony to scripture and then as the illustration of the testimony of scripture goes to divorce so the text here makes very clear very clear he is stepping on some toes he is stepping on some toes big time because no doubt there must have been some Pharisees, at least in the midst of what Jesus was encountering here, those Jesus was encountering, who may have, according to their own manipulation of the law, had a lawful divorce. But so far as God is concerned, as Jesus speaks, that is not true. They're committing adultery. Now, one of the questions, and we come back to this, you always have to ask yourself in the, in the Gospels is, why did they crucify Jesus? In other words, how, how did the conflict get so hot? Well, here's a good example. Here's a very good example. And so even as the text looks kind of, you know, just words on a page to us, this is a conflict of probably near unbearable intensity as Jesus is speaking it. And you've got Jesus very assertive. You've got the Pharisees very angry, very offended. Now, we've seen before, for instance, in the preceding chapter, in Luke chapter 15, that when Jesus sees the Pharisees offended, he doesn't back up, he presses on. Okay, this parable about a lost sheep had offended you? Okay, wait just a minute. I'm going to offend you with a parable about a lost coin. But in this case, the heroine is not going to be a man, but a woman deal with that. And then, it's like they're not offended enough, so Jesus delivers the parable we know as the prodigal son, which is actually the parable of the two lost sons. And by the end of that parable, the Pharisees think they're in the warmth of the home, but by the end of the parable, they're outside in the cold, facing eternal judgment. They're the elder son who will not rejoice when the younger son comes home. So again, the intensity is still building. So what comes next? One of the signs of authenticity in the narrative structure of Luke, now we believe in this because of the perfection of Scripture, which we're just going to speak of, that Scripture is unbroken, that it includes no error at all, the inerrancy of Scripture. So that's an a priori assertion for us. But it is good to see what shocks people who don't accept the inerrancy of Scripture. 
So if you don't start with the a priori or the prior assertion of the inerrancy of Scripture, which Scripture clearly teaches of itself, then you've got to figure out, okay, what's going to look more authentic and less authentic? Well, I can just tell you, it's just interesting that even the liberals think this is in the most authentic category. Now, we think Genesis to Revelation is the most authentic category, but it is interesting that they believe this is in the most authentic category. Using their criteria, why would they say that? It is because there is no explanation for this other than an unfolding dynamic. There you go. It's like they're looking at it saying, this is the way cinema comes together. Uh, the, these sequences only work, and they're unexpected, and uh, they're disjointed. In other words, if someone were just writing this in a thematic way, they would never write it with this kind of tension in it. But the tension's here. So what's Jesus going to do? He's going to speak a parable. And this is one of the most amazing parables and one of the most neglected among evangelicals. It should not be. It is known as the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who will be able to pass over from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent." He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, a couple of quick things. Is this or is this not a parable? Well, it isn't introduced by saying, and Jesus told them a parable. But the narrative structure is entirely parabolic. Ah, but there's another thing. And that is that this parable includes a man with a name. In this case, Lazarus. So, another problem. This parable includes didactic content. And so didactic content is teaching. In other words, there's, there's significant doctrinal teaching in this parable or in this passage. So is it a parable? Well, the best way I know to put it is this. It is a parable that's far more than a parable. And it is a doctrinal passage with historical content and a parabolic shape. Oh, there you go. It's unique. So if you're going to list this as a parable or not a parable, my argument is it has the shape of a parable. But it doesn't have just the general references of a parable. So it's the Word of God. You don't need to toss and turn in the middle of the night trying to figure out if it should be classified as a parable. Just take it as a passage that's shaped like a parable but is far more than just a parable. It begins with these two men. 
Most importantly, it, it begins with a rich man who dressed in purple. Remember Lydia? She dressed in purple. Purple was a color of royalty, and it's because purple, all, every color they had was an organic color. They didn't have any artificial color. So the only way to get purple in a lasting dye is from a, a, a certain form of berry that was found only in Asia Minor and in, in rare places. So it, it, you, 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 you had to crush a berry and boil a bark, I believe it was, in order to get it. The point is, this is ostentatious wealth. Oh, the only person who dressed in purple every day was a royal monarch. And purple was a color of royalty. If other people wore color purple, it's, uh, it's because they want to look royal. Now, by the way, th this happens throughout civilizations where members of the court start to look more and more royal, which may be an irritation to the monarch, but may be useful to the monarch as well. In the European system, this became known as distributed monarchical authority. Distributed monarchical authority means Downton Abbey. It means that the monarchy is simply too necessary and uh, the, the responsibility is too broad that a single monarch can carry out all the official duties and, 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 and represent and ceremony and everything, all the rest. And besides that, the monarch can't be everywhere all the time. So the distributed uh, monarchical authority meant that you now have dukes, you now have earls, you now have counts, and, and they have castles. By the way, a little technicality. I'm an Anglophile. I love this kind of thing. Uh, outside of royal ownership, there is only one palace. Uh, and, and that's just another in, in, England, in, uh, in all of England. That's Blenheim Palace, which is the ancestral home of the Duke of Marlborough. And uh, it is called a palace because of uh, the, the great gratitude uh, of the monarchy uh, to the first Churchill's great victory over England's enemies. So there's a palace there. Otherwise, you can't have a castle uh, or you have a house or you have something that was transformed out of an abbey, and abbey's there. High, Downtown Abbey is actually Highclere. Uh, the point is, you have, to, you have to have this distributed royalty, distributed royal authority at least, so that if the queen can't be there, now the king in England, if the king can't be there, then maybe a duke, maybe a baron, maybe, maybe somebody. And by the way, everybody knows the pecking order very well. Well, the distributed monarchical authority in, in the Roman Empire uh, included an awful lot of people who were just outright crooks or cretins, uh, like Pilate. But the thing is, is that the, the Jewish people had no distributed monarchy. And so that's what makes this more offensive. You should be very offended. This, this man so rich, he, he wears purple. Purple looks Roman and looks crooked. It's just ostentatious wealth, and that's just the way this works. Mary and I were in uh, California several times this year for different events, and at one event we were in the proximity to one of the wealthiest of all the wealthy areas in California, right on the beach. I won't say what it is. I'll just say normal hundred millionaires can't live there. But it's very interesting to notice that the houses are not ostentatious. They're built on phenomenal pieces of land, but they're kind of built into the 
landscape so you don't see them so much. That's what the truly, truly, incredibly wealthy kind of do. They want to kind of blend into. <laughs> but the people who are just like less wealthy, you should see their homes. They're massive. And they've got, I mean, they're just, they draw attention to themselves. That's the difference. Okay, that's this guy. That's this guy. He, he's, he feasts sumptuously every day. He dresses in purple every day. It's obnoxious. And he, and he thinks he has God's favor. Because remember, that's how we got into this with the Pharisees. He thinks he has God's favor. And then there is the other man who very quickly appears in this parable, and that's Lazarus. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, lots going on here. This is the dramatic contrast, and this is the parabolic shape. This is shaped like a parable, whether it's a parable or not, because there's a name and historical events that are referenced here. So you have this rich man who we do not have a name for. In some Bible translations and in some preaching, they'll call him Dives, but that's invented by his richness. That's not a name given to him. Lazarus is a name given to him, and Lazarus is a very common name in the first century. And, and you'll notice themes here because we know there was a Lazarus. It, there's no sign it was that Lazarus. There's so many Lazaruses, it would, but it, it does, again, point to a man, just every man, common man. You could say, you know, Joe Smith or something like that. This is, this is the name. We, we're not surprised by his name, but he's dignified with a name. And he's poor and he's sick. He's dying. He's laid at the rich man's gate or at his door. He could have lived off of what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs come and lick the sores. Okay, in the Bible, you'll notice references to dogs are always negative. Always. There is no positive reference to a dog whatsoever in the Bible. A uh, couple of reasons for that. First of all, their mouths. And by that, I do not mean biting you. I mean that they will touch anything with their mouth. It's the least Jewish thing imaginable. The least Jewish animal on earth is a scavenger. And uh, that, that's what the dog is. You know, the dog, it'll bring in dead stuff. It'll bring in non-kosher stuff. It will touch with its mouth just about anything. It's the opposite of an upright Jew, according to the Old Testament, who will not even touch such things. Okay, so that's not problem number one. Problem number two is that the Jewish people, with rare exceptions, were not wealthy enough to feed an animal to be a friend, which, let's face it, is the deal with the dog. It's the most amazing form of animal-human symbiosis. It's a deal. The dog's deal is, you give me a place to live, you give me food, I will shower you with undeserved affection. I will worship you as if you are an idol. I will make you the center of my life so much that I will convince myself by grieving while you're gone. And uh, just, I mean, it, it's a sweet thing. I think it's a beautiful thing in terms of kind of a Genesis understanding of humans and, and animals together. And I am a dog lover. I, I, I am. Uh, but you would not have liked these dogs. These dogs are not pets. These dogs are not domesticated. These dogs show up the equivalent of buzzards. Not too long ago, I was, I was reading about some, uh, some early Baptists who had left the western frontier, which was 
Alabama, okay? At a certain point, Alabama was the western frontier. Tuscaloosa was the last city of civilization going west. Don't tell them that now. And uh, so they pressed out from there, and they got as far as what is now the Texas Panhandle, and their wagon broke down, and just it's, every, everything broke down. And they said it reached the point where they got up one morning and looked outside of their tent, and there was an entire circle of buzzards staring at them. Now, that, that's just bad news. I just got to tell you, this is where, you know, you cue the Erico Morricone music from the old Spaghetti Western and uh, this is where despair sets in. If, if you look out your tent and you, you get a bunch of buzzards looking at you, they are not curious. They are not the welcoming committee. They assume you're going to die, and they're about to peck your flesh off your bones. Okay? The Lazarus dogs are the same thing. When the dogs come, they're, they're licking his sores, which means they're starting to eat him while he's alive. You talk about a low estate, and not only that, that makes him so ritually unclean. It's just hard to imagine that a dog just, you don't know where that tongue's been. And now it's licking a Jewish man nearing the point of death at a rich man's door. It's, it's an excruciating distinction between the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man has everything, feasts sumptuously every day, Lazarus has absolutely nothing, and wouldn't you know, they die. Sure enough, we knew Lazarus was about to die. He looked like he was about to die. The dogs are preparing their pallets. Okay, and this is where the story gets really interesting. Because remember, you see the externals. God knows the heart. God knows the internals. And not only that, he controls eternal destiny. Look at this. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Okay, we expect that. But then the rich man also died and was buried, unexpected. And, in, and don't, you, don't you kind of picture that, right? You kind of picture him, you know, sitting there at his table, dressed in purple, stuff in his mouth, when all of a sudden he goes in another thing. It's, it's, in other words, this is completely unexpected, completely unexpected. Okay. And in Hades being in torment, this is the rich man. The rich man's in Hades being in torment. He lifts up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so remember all that we thought about with Jesus and the struggle with the Pharisees and the increasing dynamic and, 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 and issues of absolute conflict, which apparently included divorce. Their prosperity theology, by which they had simply transformed earthly riches into God's favor. Their self-satisfaction in the middle of all of this. Now you've got the man who looks and acts like a Pharisee who dies and goes to Hades, and then he sees, he sees in blessedness Father Abraham. He doesn't have to say where Abraham is because that's all you have to say is Abraham because he's in the very bosom of God. And so he sees Abraham, and then Lazarus is in his bosom. Abraham's in the bosom of God. Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, which was a children's song in Sunday school we sang which I thought was the strangest song. I was just like the demythologizing six-year-old, like, how in the world are we in the bosom of Abraham? I don't, I don't think so. And besides that, there had been no reference to a man having one previously in my life. And so I was completely confused about the whole thing. But that's another story. That's why I became a theologian. Figure out the songs I was taught as a kid. But nonetheless, 
Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, which means the, the, the point of greatest blessedness. That's why Abraham's in God's bosom. That's a, it's a, in, in perfect peace, in, in harmony with God, a part of God's family, so to speak. And now Lazarus is with him. And, and so this is disjunctive. It is offensive to the Pharisees. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Here's where things get really, really interesting. I've done a great deal, been involved in theological discussions and at least uh, two or three book projects now, uh, in which my role has been to defend the traditional biblical understanding of hell. Because it, it may be a bit less so at the moment, but Beginning in the, in the early 20th century, there was a sustained liberal attack upon hell as a place of eternal physical torment. And, and yet, I would argue that that's exactly, non-negotiably, clearly what the Bible teaches. It is, it is a place of physical, experiential, eternal torment. And, and the fire is not just metaphorical. And, and by the way, just a little technical note, Jesus said more about hell than about heaven. And, uh, and spoke more explicitly about hell than about heaven as a matter of warning. Now, just a little bit of reminder for us, and this is just good, especially at a time of the death of a saint or as we're thinking about the death of someone may, who may not have believed in God. Where are they right now? Well, this is where Christians have the necessary notion of what's called an intermediate state. Now, we say that because in the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is now preparing heaven for us. And in the, some of the very same parallel passages, we have Jesus giving us assurance that hell is even now being prepared for those who will be sent there. That, that's a future tense, clearly a future tense. The meaning of that future tense is made even more clear by the succession of judgments that are revealed in the book of Revelation. And so there will be a final judgment into which there will be a final disposition of those who are in Christ to heaven, uh, along with the, the, the new heaven and a new earth, and then uh, those who are not in Christ uh, unto everlasting punishment. But the Bible also says right now that to be absent from the body for a believer is to be present with the Lord. So there's a promise. That's right now. And so in some sense, right now, we can speak of our loved ones being in heaven because they're already with Christ. That's the most important thing of heaven. That's the most important truth of heaven is that it's where Christ is. Just like Abraham's in the bosom of the Lord, we are in the bosom of Christ when we die immediately. We can speak of them immediately as being with the Lord, and they are safe forever. On the other hand, it turns out, and that's why this passage is more than a parable, it turns out that this is the crucial passage about the intermediate state for divine punishment. It's absolutely crucial. Jesus would not have told us this if it were not so. He tells us he wouldn't have told us this if it were not so. Uh, just as immediately in this intermediate state, before the final judgment, the believer is with Jesus in blessedness, so also those who are not in Christ are already in eternal torment. Now, the rich man sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he cries out to Father Abraham, by the way, not to Lazarus, because Abraham would clearly be the authority. Send Lazarus to dip his, 
his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. So already you have flame, agony, experience. Abraham's response is, uh, can't do that. Can't, can't do that. While you were uh, on earth in, in that life, you had your good things, and Lazarus had bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you're in agony there. You'll notice Abraham appears to be completely unmoved. He is merely speaking the objective truth of the before and after. The great reversal has taken place. Before, rich man, comfort, feasted every day, sumptuous, you had your good things. Lazarus had no good things. Now Lazarus is comforted here, and you're in agony there. Abraham's point is, this is exactly the way it should be. This is divine justice. This is what divine justice looks like. Abraham is not the decider here. Abraham is not the judge. Abraham is the symbolic covenant representative, and he declares the justice and righteousness of God in this situation. Can't do it. Can't send Lazarus to you. Things get more interesting because you can see that that is where this would end. You are in anguish. And then the eternal distinction is made very clear. The finality of the judgment in verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and then may cross from there to us. That's a very good point. Uh, theological liberalism in one phase that uh, hit pretty close to home in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, held out at least the possibility of a post-mortem conversion. Now, in effect, if not by official teaching, then by very common uh, assumption, uh, there are those who believe in the possibility for some kind of post-mortem confession uh, in Roman Catholicism. Or, but it's also in just folk Christianity where it's assumed, you know, maybe this is why you have rituals of prayer for the dead as if their disposition might be changed. There's no hint in Scripture that that's appropriate or possible in any way. Indeed, this passage seems to say exactly the opposite. It is impossible. But that's not where it ends either. That would be a, a convenient ending point. Now, remember in the preceding chapter when Jesus has the, the prodigal come home and the father receives him, and he holds a feast, and, and they were glad and rejoiced, that was the natural end of the parable. That was the natural end, the way most parables are, are done. And no one questions that all those of Luke 15 were parables because Luke tells us they're parables. This is a little different, but the dynamic's the same. This sounds like an ending so that you cannot go from there to us, nor anyone can go from us to you, period. But it's not. And, and again, brothers are involved. Did you notice this? It, it, it's, this is where Scripture is just so phenomenally surprising because in Luke chapter 15, remember the parable of the two boys, the two sons? And, and you feel like the story is complete with the first son coming home and the father celebrating and showing grace and mercy, a picture of the gospel. But, but there's another son but the older son out in the field. Okay, ooh. And in this case, it's five brothers. And, and, La and uh, the rich man says, okay, well, if you can't send Lazarus to me, send him to my five brothers so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Okay, this is very interesting. Again, there's, you think it's over and it's not over because there's a brother somewhere, or in this case, five of them. 
But the response of, of, uh, of Abraham here is not something that anyone could have come up with just as a matter of anticipation. Look at what Abraham says in verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so let me go back to the teenager talking to a parent. You know, because you were a teenager, and now maybe you've parented one or a few, maybe you're grandparenting teenagers now, you know that it takes a certain amount of time to find out what the conversation is really about. Because where the conversation starts is not necessarily any indication of what the conversation is about. There's going to be a turn, maybe several turns in this conversation, and eventually you will find out if there's enough time and you have patience, you're going to find out what this conversation is about. Well, that's a bit of what's going on here. Is this conversation about divorce? That's kind of how we get started in this. Is, it a, is this conversation about prosperity theology? That's a part of how we get started here. Is this, is this, is this conversation about grace, as in Lazarus receiving grace? There's not much testimony on Lazarus's part, but, but grace is shown to him, so we can, we can kind of understand that. Is it, is it about judgment? We have all this only to find out at the last minute it wasn't really, mainly, mostly about any of that. It's about the authority of Scripture. Now, all that's there. All that's there. Hell, heaven, judgment, negative verdict on prosperity theology, God's condemnation of divorce. It's all there. Hell's there. Heaven's there. But where this ends up, and this is one of the ironclad rules of biblical interpretation, where Jesus brings something to an end, we are supposed to understand that as the point. That's what Jesus does here. Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. That's the Scriptures, speaking of the the Pentateuch and the prophets. That, That would have been common first century Judaism just a way of speaking of the Scripture, Moses and the prophets. Sometimes referred to as the law and the prophets. Same thing, Moses, the law, Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he says, no, but if you send Lazarus to them, then they'll repent. And then Abraham says, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, then they would not repent, even if one should rise from the dead. Boom! <laughs> the one saying this is not only God in human flesh, he's the one who rose from the dead. And those who deny that he was who he was, before the resurrection, denied who he is after the resurrection. Jesus says it all starts with questioning the authority of Scripture. If you will not listen to Moses and the prophets, you're not going to believe anything else. It's really good advice for church. Really good admonition. It's more than advice. It's, it's absolute binding doctrinal authority. If people won't hear the gospel, they're not going to be saved by technique. If they're not reached by the preaching of the Bible, then they're not going to be reached by any kind of technique, any kind of program, any kind of manipulation. Because only the Bible is sufficient to get to the heart. 
So we speak of the, of the, of the perfections of Scripture, of the, of the ways in which Scripture is perfect. And we have no absolutely perfect list about the perfections of Scripture. That's the thing about being perfect. We, we are imperfect, so we can't even list all the perfections. But certainly, it's divine inspiration. It, it's, it's verbal nature. It's propositional structure. It's infallibility. It cannot fail. It's inerrancy. It cannot err. It's unbrokenness. It is a seam. It's, its status is living rather than dead, a living word. It's Holy Spirit inspiration, which assures not only that at the moment of its authorship it is fully inspired, every word inspired, every word fully inspired, but that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the word also illuminates in such a way that the believer is drawn to the truth of God's word as eyes are opened and as understanding is given with the Holy Spirit who inspired the word, now inspiring, not the same way, but opening the eyes of, illuminating is the best word, the uh, believer to receive the word. And the Holy Spirit takes it to the heart. As Luther said so well, it is the preacher's task to get God's word from the, the page to the ear, but only the Holy Spirit can take the word from the ear to the heart. The perfection of Scripture is that it never fails as it says itself. <laughs> it never fails to accomplish the purpose for which the Lord sends it. But this is a very big temptation for Christians to figure out that we can do better than the Word. We can be more evangelistically effective than preaching. We can come up with a mode of authority or a mode of argument that will be superior to biblical preaching. And Jesus says, well, good luck with that. won't work. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, then they will not believe, even if one should rise from the dead. One of the most amazing aspects of the Gospel of Luke, and it's one of the proofs of its divine inspiration, is how it catches us by surprise and how we notice Luke's Holy Spirit-given ability as the one who's writing an orderly account of these things to give us that orderly account which includes all the shocking lack of our ability to anticipate what's coming next. I enjoyed sharing this with you, this uh, parable, or this passage, let's say, from Luke chapter 16. Uh, I do believe it is the absolute strongest statement of the sufficiency of Scripture found in the New Testament. There are other statements, including statements by Jesus about the unbrokenness of the Word, about the perfection of the Word of God, but about its sufficiency, about the fact that it always does what God sends it to do, and it never fails what God sends it to do, and nothing can suffice but Scripture. There is no testimony in all of Scripture as powerful as this, and it takes a dead rich man and a dead poor man and Father Abraham to help us to see it. I'm glad we see it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you give us such passages as these and this word that is unbroken, inerrant, infallible, perfect, inspired, and yes, Lord, sufficient. Thank you for giving it to us. We prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word in the worship of the saints to follow when we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen, and thank you.